No, no, I'm so happy to be here. I am so happy to be in this place um, uh, where the presence of God is so rich and so real. Um, I hope, I hope you press your way in. Um, I hope, uh, I hope God can do a work today in spite of me. That's what I hope. I hope I don't get in his way because uh, I truly believe that God has a word for us um, and I just hope I don't get in his way. This week, this week I was talking to Pastor Chad and, uh, and uh, we were talking about a podcast. I asked him about a podcast that we were both listening to and, 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 uh, and he told me that he hadn't really been listening to it anymore because uh, it seemed like all the recent guests were giving the devil too much credit. Seemed like all the people that were coming on there we're, we're really giving the devil too much credit for the impact of the history of this world. Now, in the church that I grew up in, right, the church that I grew up in, I don't ever remember hearing about Satan. Not once. I don't remember hearing about him once. Uh, uh, that just, that just uh, I'm sure, I'm fairly sure we had the same Bible, right? Pretty sure, but but. But those parts just never came up. Those parts just never came up. I think, I think the general assumption was, I think the general assumption was, hey, we're all church folks here, so he has nothing to do with us. And for that matter, for that matter, I don't, I don't ever remember hearing about a place called hell. That's the church I grew up in. It's a good church, good people. We just didn't focus on those parts. Again, that hell wasn't our problem because we were all church folks. That was the assumption. Of course, you know what they say about assumptions, right? Yeah. Yeah. To be honest, I couldn't really argue with Chad. I enjoy listening to those guys on the podcast. I enjoy listening to that podcast. Uh, but those guests, those guests on that podcast, sure, they sure did make Satan sound, sound like a very worthy adversary of God. And that's a problem. That's a problem. There is no one anywhere nearly worthy of my God. So this morning, this morning, we're going to give the devil his due. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's what we're going to. Oh, he said dues. It's actually due. You know, you know, he thought I made a typo, but, but turns out he did. Uh, he's not here and we can still make fun of him. That's the beauty. That's the beauty of how involved Dylan is. He does so much for the church, we can still make fun of him even when he's not here. Oh, thank you, Dylan. I appreciate you so much. Have you heard that phrase before, give the devil his due? Not dues, due. Have you heard that? Give the devil his due? Uh, I quickly looked into the history of that, that, that phrase, and, and, and one of the first times it showed up in writing was, was in Henry V. It was a play written by William Shakespeare uh, back in 1599. Uh, it's been around a while, uh, give the devil his due. Uh, but uh, when people use it now, here's what I've found. When people use it now, it's usually to describe paying something they don't want to pay to someone they don't want to pay it to, thereby referring to that person as the devil. Yeah, that's how we use it. That's how we use it. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. Uh, um, it goes something like this. I'm not a big fan of Tom Brady, but you got to give the devil his due. That man could get some results on the football field, right? That's how we use it. That's how we use it. Uh, that wasn't how William Shakespeare used it, but, the, but that's how we pretty much use it nowadays uh, uh, when we're using it. Uh, give the devil his due. But we're not talking about people today. We're not talking about those devils. 
We're not talking about people today. Uh, uh, in, in, uh, in his letter to Ephesus, Paul writes this, the same Paul that, that Chad was talking about, Paul writes this, uh, Ephesus chapter, or Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verse 12, he says, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. I'm here to tell you this morning, we have an enemy. And they're not sitting in this church. And they're not sitting in, 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 the, in the restaurants in Salina. They're not working the cash register at Walmart. Those are not our enemies. We have an enemy. We have an enemy, and it's not a person. We have an enemy, and he has been granted power over this world. He's been granted power over this world. In, 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 a, in a different letter, Paul writes it to the, the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, Satan, this is, this is, this is the Apostle Paul, strong Christian, wrote two-thirds of the New, New, New Testament, writes, writes, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. To the Corinthians, Paul refers to Satan as the God of this world. Granted, that's a small g. That's not a big g. That's a small g. The God of this world. But still, if he's calling him God with a little g, it means he's got power. He's got power. In fact... Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. In, in the book of John, chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus says, the time for judging this world has come when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of this world. Wow. Wow. So what is this power that our enemy possesses? What is this power? He's been granted power. What is this power that our enemy possesses? Let me begin. Let me begin by discussing what he does not possess. What he does not possess. Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. He's not like Santa Claus. He's not everywhere. Right? <laughs> Neither Santa Claus. Wait, the kids are, yeah, the kids are gone. We're good. <laughs> Sorry, Jackson. Sorry, buddy. Uh, yeah, he's he not everywhere. When, when, uh, when giving a report to God in the book of Job, Satan says, uh, uh, God asked him where he come, has come from, and Satan says that he has come from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. He gets around, but he's not everywhere. He is not omnipresent. He is also not omniscient, 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 omniscient. He, he's not all-knowing. God's not all-knowing. He's not omniscient. Omniscient. I was trying to put an extra syllable in there. I was putting, to put in an extra syllable in there, and there wasn't one. It's omniscient. He's not omniscient. He's not. He's not all-knowing. He doesn't know everything, including our thoughts and our intentions, like God does. Like God does. He doesn't know. He doesn't have that power. And he is most definitely not omnipotent. He is not omnipotent, which means all-powerful. 
all-powerful. He is not all-powerful. His power is very limited. His power is very limited and has always been limited by God. We have an enemy, but we have an enemy whose hands are tied. Whose hands are tied. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Peter describes Satan as follows uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He says, be sober, be vigilant. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You've heard that before? Be sober, be vigilant, because your enemy, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The word that always jumps out to me in that verse is the word may. May. Seeking whom he may devour. It doesn't say seeking whom he can devour. It says seeking whom he may devour. There's a big difference between can and may. And it comes up every week that we're in the back with the Sunday school class. It comes up every week. Every week. When some kid in that class raises their hand and says, can I go to the bathroom? And my answer is always the same. I say, I hope so. I hope so. There's a very distinct difference between can and may. You guys know the difference between can and may? Do you know it? Do you know it? Can and may. This is a refresher for Sunday school class because I've explained this to them many times right before they say, can I go to the bathroom? And right after I say, can they, they say, can I go to the bathroom? What does can denote? What does can, what does can mean? If you ask can, what does that mean? Anna, what's it mean if you ask can? If you have the what? No, 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 no. Can denotes ability, ability. When you say, can I go to the bathroom? You say, do I have the ability to go to the bathroom? And my answer is always, I hope so. I hope so. Because it's going to get real messy if you don't. Can denotes ability. Do I have the ability to go to the bathroom? This verse didn't say can. It didn't say that the devil ro- roams around seeking whom he can devour. It says seeking whom he may devour. What does may denote? What does it mean? What does may mean? Permission. That's right. Permission. Permission. The enemy goes around as a roaring lion seeking whom he has permission to devour. Who gives that permission? Who gives that permission? Listen, listen here. We'll get there. I'm reminded of the story of Job. I'm reminded of the story of Job. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says this. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God, those are angels, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, this is what I referenced before, from where do you come? And Satan answers to the Lord and he says, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Oh, Job. There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Have you considered Job, Satan? That guy's good. So Satan answers the Lord and he says, Job. Does he fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. 
but now stretch out your hand and touch all he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Yeah, yeah, he's upright, but it's because of the blessings, the ridiculous blessings in his life. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that Job has is in your hands. All that Job has is in your power. He gave him power. All that Job has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. When, uh, when Jesus was talking about himself as the good shepherd, he also described the thief, and he said this in, in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what the thief does. And that's exactly what Satan did to Job. That's exactly what Satan did to Job. He stole his wealth. He killed his children, and he destroyed his livelihood. Steal, kill, and destroy. God gave Satan permission to greatly torment Job. But he did not and will not ever grant permission for Job or for you or for me to be devoured by the enemy. He will never give permission for us to be devoured by the enemy. He does not do that. Still, Job lost so much. He lost so much. I can't imagine. I can't imagine being in his place. Was he blessed? Was he incredibly blessed? He was incredibly blessed. And then in one day, it was gone. In one day, it was gone. Why would God allow, why would God allow such terrible things to happen? Why does God allow terrible things to happen? I'm not, I'm not talking about reaping what you sow. I'm not talking about, you know, I made a stupid decision and now I've got to suffer the consequences from it. Job didn't make a stupid decision. God said Job was doing what he was supposed to be doing. Why does God allow terrible things to happen like they did to Job? I'm a big believer. I'm a big believer that any question that begins with why does God always has the same answer. We see that answer. If we go back to, to 1 Peter, the verse we were reading before, we, we see that answer. In 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 8, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To God be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5. When we suffer, we are perfecting, establishing, and strengthening our faith. That's the goal. That's the goal. But more than that, more than that, I believe that the answer to any question that begins with why does God, the answer is always that he might receive glory and that some might come to know him 
as their Lord and Savior? It's always the answer. Why does God, that he might receive glory and that some might come to know him as their Lord and Savior? Why does God? Because he is not willing that any should suffer the eternal death that is hell. Even if we have to suffer the death of this body, he's not willing that any should suffer the eternal death that is hell. Why does God? Because he wants to spend eternity with you in heaven. That's why. Let me ask you a question. Where where does a candle shine brightest? What's that? No, that's wrong. That's a trick question. I'm sorry. That's a trick question. Look, the candles always shine the same. They always shine the same. That's a trick question. But where does the candle appear to be brightest? In the dark. In the dark. In the dark. That's where it, that's where it appears to be the brightest. That's where it, that's where it sh- looks brightest. That's where it's most visible. A candle is most visible in the darkness. Think about this. Job lived a blessed life. Job served the Lord. Job served the Lord. But outside of God, outside of God who knew what? He's, he's, he's omniscient, so he knew what? He knew his thoughts. He knew his thoughts, right? He knew his motives. He knew his intents. Outside of God, nobody noticed Job's faith. Even Satan, who's supposed to be so smart, didn't realize Job's faith because he's not omniscient. He didn't realize Job's faith. Listen, nobody has ever marveled, nobody has ever marveled at Job's faith when everything was going his way. Nobody ever marveled at his faith. Nobody said, oh, look at Job, except God, because God knew. Everybody else was like, well, of course he is. Well, of course he is. Satan even dismissed his faith because of Job's cushy circumstances. No one will marvel at your faith in the good times. No one will marvel. They may take note of it, but they're not going to go, wow, in the good times. No one will marvel at your faith in the good times. James, in his book, James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Count it all joy, yes! Thank you, Jesus, for the hell that has risen up against me. Thank you, Lord. That's tough. That's tough. That is some hard stuff. That is some hard stuff. I heard this story this week. I want to share a story that I, that I heard on the radio this week. I think it was this week. Uh, uh, it was either this week or last week. Uh, and I, I, heard, I heard a snippet of it on the radio, so I looked it up. Um. Betsy and Corey Ten Boom are from Holland. Yeah, they're from Holland. They were Christians. They were Christians, and, and because their family was hiding Jews from the Nazis, these, these young ladies were sent to Ravensbrück, a concentration camp north of Berlin. Betsy and Corey. And we read about their experiences. Uh, Corey actually has written a book, and so we read about the experiences in her book, The Hiding Place, and the following is an excerpt about one of those experiences in Barracks 28. This is what Corey says. She said, we lay back, struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking straw. And suddenly, I sat up, 
striking my head on the cross slats above. Been there, done that. Uh, Something had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, her sister, her older sister. Betsy, this place is swarming with them. Here, and another one, I wailed. And Betsy, 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 how can we live in such a place? And Betsy says, show us. Show us how. It was said, it was said so matter-of-factly that it took me a second to realize that she was praying. More and more, more and more the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Pray without ceasing. Seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey, she said excitedly, excitedly. He's given us the answer before we even asked, as he always does. In the Bible this morning, where was it? Read that part again. And I glanced down the long dim aisle to make sure no guard was in sight. And then I drew the Bible from its pouch. It was in 1 Thessalonians, I said. We were on our, our third complete reading of the New Testament since leaving uh, Sheveningen. Go on, said Betsy. That wasn't all. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. And I stared at her. (laughs) Then around me, at the dark, foul-aired room, such as, I said, such as being assigned here together. And I bit my lip. Oh, yes, Lord Jesus, such as what you're holding in your hands. And I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for, thank you for all these women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy, thank you for the very crowding here, since we're packed so close that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds, Lord. (laughs) Thank you, Betsy went on serenely. Thank you for the fleas and for the fleas. That was too much. That's too much. Betsy, there is no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. Back at the barracks, we formed yet another line to receive our ladle of turnip soup in the center room. And then as quickly as we could for the press of the people, Betsy and I made our way to the rear of the dormitory room where we held our worship service. Around our own platform area, there was not enough light to read the Bible, but back here, 
A small light bulb cast a, a wan yellow circle on the wall. And here, an even larger group of women gathered. They were, they were services like no other these times in Barracks 28. At first, Betsy and I, we called these meetings with great timidity. But as night after night went by and no guard ever came near us, we grew bolder. So many now wanted to join us that we held a second service after evening roll call. There in the camp on the Langenstrasse, the, the main street, we were under rigid surveillance, guards in their warm wool capes marching constantly up and down. It was the same in the center room of the barracks. Half a dozen guards or camp police were always present. Yet in the large dormitory room, there was almost no supervision at all, and we didn't understand. One evening, one evening, I got back to the barracks from gathering wood outside the walls. Uh, there was a light snow, and so it made it hard to find the sticks and twigs. Uh, uh, but I got back, and Betsy was waiting for me, as always, so that we could wait through the food line together. And her eyes were twinkling. She and I said to her, I said, you're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself. She said, you know, we never understood why we had so much freedom in the big room. She said, well, I found out. That afternoon, uh, uh, she said there had been some confusion in her knitting group about sock sizes, and they'd asked the supervisor to come and settle it, but she wouldn't. She wouldn't come. She wouldn't step through the door, and neither would the guards. And you know why? You know why? Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice because of the fleas. That's what she said. That place is crawling with fleas. I'm not going in there. And my mind, my mind rushed back to that first hour in this place. I remember Betsy's bowed head. I remember her thanks to God for creatures I could see zero use for. Thank you for the fleas. James says, count it all joy. And Paul, Paul told the church at Thessalonica, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why would God allow such awful things? His glory, that some might come to know him as Lord and Savior. In his first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul writes to, to a church that's struggling with all kinds of issues. And this is what he says. He says, there's no temptation that's overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God will never allow your struggle to exceed your capacity to bear it. If the struggle is great, thank God that he's made you greater. Let me say that again. If the struggle is great, thank God that he's made you greater. This mirrors what we, what we read in, in, in 1 Peter. Uh, 1 Peter 5.9 says, Resist him, the devil, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings you are experienced the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It's not unique. Your struggle is not unique. You are not alone in your struggle. Let me say that again. You are not alone in your struggle. You see, that's one of the biggest lies of the enemy. Do you realize the devil's superpower? He's got powers, right? Do you realize the devil's superpower is deception? 
Deception. He tells lies. It's what he does. That's his superpower. Jesus refers to him as the father of lies. That's who he is. What that means, though, what that means, though, is that the truth is his kryptonite. If deception is his superpower, then the truth is his kryptonite. The truth is his kryptonite. The sword of the spirit is our weapon against the enemy. This is our weapon against the enemy. If deception is his superpower, then the truth is, our, is his kryptonite. This is our weapon against the enemy. It's the only weapon Jesus used when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness after fasting for 40 days. It was the only weapon he used was the word. He said, Jesus said, it is written. That was his, that was his sword. It is written. Let me tell you what the actual truth is, Satan. Oh, is that what you're thinking, Satan? Let me tell you what the actual truth says. Let me tell you what God says. Let me tell you how, you, let me tell you how it's actually going to go and how it actually works. The truth, the truth is his kryptonite. This is our weapon. This is our weapon. Satan says nobody else is struggling with this. Nobody else is struggling with this. There must be something wrong with you because nobody else is struggling with this. No, 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 no. It is written. No temptation has overtaken you except as is common to man. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 32, he said, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Knowing the truth can free us Knowing the truth will free us from the bondage of sin because the truth is our weapon against the enemy. You see, sin, sin is like a fungus. It grows better in the dark. Sin grows better in the dark. That's why, that's why James says in James chapter 5, verse 16, he says, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Confess your trespasses one to another. Trespasses, that's another word for sin. Confess your sins one to another. Confess your sins to them. Don't hide it in the darkness, but get it out in the light. Trespasses, just another word for sin. If, if, if we start confessing our sins, if we start confessing our sins to some Bible-believing confidence, not to everybody and their brother, but to some Bible-believing confidants, if we start confessing our sins, two things are going to happen. First, you're going to realize how stupid you've been. I'm stupid. Let me tell you what I did. And second, you're going to realize that you are not alone in your struggle. And the truth shall make you free. When you shine the light of truth on that sin, it withers away. It withers away. 
So we talked about it at the beginning. We talked about God allowing the enemy to torment us. To torment us. But we're the only ones who can allow the roaring lion to devour us. You're right, John. We're the only ones. We're the only ones. We allow it when we hide our sins. We allow it when we suffer alone. We allow him to devour us when we chase after the things of this world rather than chasing after God. In 1 John, the Bible identifies these things of the world. Uh, 1 John uh, uh, 2, chapter 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. The lust of the flesh, that's the things that feel good. The lust of the eyes, those are the things that look good. And the pride of life, which are the things that make you feel better about yourself than everyone else around you. That's all Satan has to offer. That's all he has to offer. That's what, that's what he offered Eve back in Genesis through that forbidden fruit. He said, look at it. It looks good. Lust of the eyes. Taste it. It's sweet. Lust of the flesh. And when you eat it, you'll be like God. Pride of life. That's what he offered Eve back in the garden. Lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. That's all Satan has to offer. That's all he offered Eve. That's all he offered Jesus out there in the wilderness. And that's all he has to offer us. Just some of those things in exchange for your soul, your eternal soul. That's a raw deal. That is a raw deal. We allow Satan to devour us when we refuse to pick up our sword, the word of God, which is kryptonite to our enemy. Can I get some help with music? We'll see. Nah, it's good. Jesus was talking to his disciples. Um, in the book of Matthew, chapter 16, Jesus was talking to his disciples and he asked them. He said, who, who are the people, who are the people saying that I am? And they said, well, some say you're John the Baptist and some say you're Moses and some say you're Elijah. It's like, oh, okay. And then he turned the question on them. In Matthew, chapter 16, verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And so in verse 16, Simon Peter answered. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And in verse 17, Jesus answered and he said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say that you, I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There are some that read those verses and they claim that Jesus Jesus said he was going to build his church upon Peter, because the name Peter means rock. Piece of the rock. Piece of the rock. Little rock. That's right, like Arkansas. And no one's building their church. So, oh, no. I don't there are some who say that he was going to build his church upon Peter because his name means rock. That's why, listen, that's why St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is built on the top of Peter's grave. Wow. Wow. That's a tough sell for me. Let me just tell you, I'm no theologian, but that's a tough sell for me. Because if you continue to read in the Bible, just a couple verses down later, Jesus calls Peter Satan and says, get behind me, Satan. That's a tough sell for me that he was the guy. He was the guy. That's a pretty quick turnaround. But I believe, I believe the rock that this church, and I don't mean this church, I mean this church, capital C, I believe the rock that that church, our church, the church of Jesus Christ is built on is not Peter himself, but the statement that Peter made. The statement that Peter made. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the rock on which our church is built. That is the rock that separates us from every other religion. Jesus was not just a man. He is not just a man but he is the son of the living God. Do you want to give the devil his due? I've read the end of the book. I've read the end of the book. Satan is defeated. What do we owe the devil? Defeat. That's what we owe him. We owe him defeat. James 4, 7. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's what we owe. The enemy of our soul. Defeat. Matthew 16, second part of verse 18 says, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I know we've talked about this before, but I'm going to remind you. Gates are not an offensive weapon. Nobody comes to a battle carrying gates. Nobody hits other people over the head with a gate. Gates are not an offensive weapon. Gates were created to protect those inside. And we can't mix it up. Jesus didn't say that hell won't prevail against the gates of the church. We act that way sometimes, don't we? we got to get them in the church. we got to close those doors tight and get them in the church so we can protect them from the enemy out there. 
No, 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 no. That's not what my Bible says. That's not what my Bible says. We're not the ones with the gates. They're the ones with the gates. Because he's not the one coming here. We're the ones. The church is the ones supposed to go there. Supposed to go there. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. He said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. We're on the offense and the enemy is on the defense. When we pick up our swords, when we pick up our swords and remind Satan what he, he knows the book. I'm telling you right now, he knows the book. He knows the end of the story. He's just hoping we don't. When we pick up the word, we pick up our swords and we remind him what is written in it. Remind him what is written in it. We shine the light of truth on the lies of the enemy and those lies will wither. We have victory in Jesus and the enemy is defeated. That's what we owe him, defeat. Amen?